Welcome to Let's Get To, the baseball show from the fans' perspective. Now here's your host, James Christopher. Oh, and welcome to Let's Get To. I am your host, James Christopher, and we have a great show for you today. We are going to answer Don Gillingham's big question of, where in the world is Andy Tom Chesson? But on Sunday, things seem to get better. For one, found out that I am, in fact, and have since had the second dose of the vaccine, my wife is also getting the second dose of the vaccine, so it starts to feel a little bit more normal. And we had spring baseball. And I can't tell you how um, how good it did me to see friends of mine who, even though they root for different clubs, just excited as a collective for spring training, supporting each other, being friendly. There was a gift dance-off at one point, um, and it was just fun, and it was really what baseball should be about, about bringing people together, particularly when, you know, it's just been so rough for going on a year. Like we're almost exactly a year from when I found out I wasn't going to spring training. We found out two days before we were supposed to fly out that it was like, nope, not going to happen. So it was a great day on Sunday to see a lot of that happen. However, something did happen on Sunday And it got me thinking of, and this will be the first time this movie is quoted on the show, Major League Two. And there's a scene where Willie Mays Hayes, uh, coming just off his movie role of Black Hammer, White Lightning with Jesse the Body Ventura, played admirably by Omar Epps. I I have spoken before, at least on Twitter, that I think the movie's a better movie with Wesley Wesley Snipes in it. No offense to Omar Epps, but he hits a home run. And if we remember Major League, he did push-ups anytime he hit the ball in the air. And Rube says, wow, Willie's really got some power. And Lou Brown says, yeah, if a guy will be bagging groceries next week. Guys, don't get too high or too low on the first two or three spring training games. Don't get too high or too low off of any spring training games. Um, I saw a guy who, a Yankee fan who had posted someone who was like, based on the, uh, on Sunday's result, though, they're not winning anything. And they're in this and that. Um, I think you can't take anything from preseason football. I think you can take even less from spring training baseball. Um, I think you need to look at health, look at, you know, are they hitting the ball hard? Are they for the most part throwing strikes? But, but you certainly cannot take anything from that first week. We're so excited for this season. I think we're even more excited for this season because we needed to feel more normal. Um, you know, Miles Straw for the Astros talked about just having fans, even though it was like, you know, 1,500 people, which was a sellout at reduced capacity. It just felt better and felt normal. We want that too as fans, but we still have to remember that this is a game that builds out and only reveals itself after months of playing. 
you know, where we can reflect on the 2020 season and how weird it was. And, and, you know, if you look at, again, for the Astros, from the perspective of, of the team I'm a, fall, I'm a fan of, under 500 in the regular season, a, a, a game away from going to the World Series by the time they got to the playoffs because of just, that's the nature of baseball. They really weren't getting hot until the playoffs started. So we have to remember results um, definitely in spring training. And, and one of the co-hosts of the show, Andy Tom Chesson, will tell you results up until Labor Day. No, sorry, Memorial Day just don't matter. And so just be excited for the game to be back, to hear the crack of the bat. You know, listening to Robert Ford call a baseball game was just awesome. Uh, be excited about that stuff because it's back. And let's worry about where our teams are going to finish um, when we do go from May into June. That seems like the best thing to do. And, and you know, again, in 2020, we're coming out of 2020 and things still feel weird. I think anything we can do to keep some degree of sanity is is uh, definitely the best thing. So as I've often said in my life, when in doubt, listen to Lou Brown. This just in, news from around the baseball diamond. So we're back here and we have breaking news from our favorite ball team up there in Normal, Illinois. Matt Durkin is back from the Corn Belters, but also to talk a little KCL. Uh, so Matt, you're back. What's new? Um, so we're pretty excited. We announced our four KCL teams this morning. Um, we're just really looking forward to this summer. It's had a lot of great feedback and probably like the two hours we've announced the first team. So we're really excited. Yeah, let's go through that because I love the fact that there seems to be a little bit of everything in these new identities. And I, and I want to start with what I think is going to be my favorite one, and that is the Blue Caps. Yeah, so obviously Illinois played a huge part in the Civil War 150-plus years ago, and we've had a lot of great people come from the state, from Lincoln to Grant, um, that played huge roles in it, along with the 250,000 plus soldiers that came from the state. So the Blue Caps kind of just plays homage to them. And we're really looking forward to it. The feedback about it's been great so far. Uh, have you done uniform designs on them yet? Or are we just at a logo so far? So we do have uniform designs um, on that team. They're going to kind of look like the old Houston Astros um, jerseys with a blue and red and gray tint to it. So they'll be pretty cool. You know you're speaking my language, right? <laughs> I do am I, know. Am I allowed to give you money now for that? Or do I need to do that offline? I'll do it offline. Um, so the Bobcats have been around, so probably from maybe the 60s or 70s. Um, there were a little bit of a stretch where they were non-existent, but um, Mike Brown, who's kind of commissioner of the Colonels League, he brought them back in the maybe five to 10 years ago at this point. And they played in the Midwest Collegiate League and with the pandemic shutting their league down as well. They kind of came to the KCL last summer and they're here to stay. So we're happy they're back in the building. And they're here to stay. Um, so you guys also are using an animal that I've only seen one other time. Um, and that is the sloth. I've only seen it one other time in another pod league in Sugarland. So tell me a little bit about the ground sloths. Yeah, so the ground sloths, um, they're now extinct. Um, they were one of the most commonly found mammals during the Ice Age period. And we just did a ton of research and no one's really ever done anything about a ground sloth. So we're kind of excited about them. We'll see how the public reacts to them later this afternoon and moving forward. 
Um, but they're like an insane animal. They're like, they were 13 to 17 feet tall. Whoa. Uh, razor sharp claws that could rip apart trees and protect themselves from predators. And they're about the size of an elephant. So very intimidating thing. Um, I can only imagine walking next to one, whoever it was thousands of millions of years ago. Um, but we're really excited to see the public's reaction to them moving forward. And then uh, the, the last one, what, what do we have finally? Yeah, so the last one is the Howlers. That was actually going to be the first team that we kind of decided would be in the league this year. Uh, it kind of has a coyote and wolf feel to it and just reaching a different audience with the outdoorsy and kind of living life on the wild side and adventure sort of mindset. So those are the four teams, and we're really looking forward to seeing how they come out this summer. Uh, I love it too. Four very distif- distinct looks that all feel very minor league baseball in the best possible way, reflecting the, the community. Um, and you know, as well as I do that minor league baseball is a large, like underground of people that just collect gear. When can we start getting our hands on shirts and caps? They'll be available in the next weeks, the month. Um, we're getting some final mock-ups on all the merchandise now, but we should have it pretty soon. Well, he is uh, Matt Durkin. We know him from talking about normal corn belters, and now he's talking all of the, the teams from the KCL, and we're going to have you back on in a couple of weeks. Man, this has been an exciting week, exciting week to talk a little bit of the Colonels Collegiate League. Thanks so much, and I can't wait for the reveals for the rest of the logos. Lights, camera, play ball, inside baseball cinema. So welcome back to Lights, Camera, Play Ball. We are talking about the movie Bottom of the Ninth today. It uh, stars Joe Mangianello. Um, I know I got his name wrong. Uh, most famously from True Blood. And then Sofia Vergara, most famously from both uh, Modern Family and Machete Kills, which is a movie that should be talked about more and more. Um, I dug the movie. So the synopsis goes, after serving 17 years in prison for a violent mistake he made in his youth, a once aspiring baseball player returns to his Bronx neighborhood. So it's a focus on the low minors, and it is very much a true baseball underdog story. What makes it different is it isn't a a movie about um, sort of being a misfit and overcoming, and it isn't um, like the natural somebody surviving something tragic in their life and overcoming or, you know, being too small, all those things that we're used to seeing. This is a movie about someone who makes a mistake and it's the gravest of mistake. And the way they paint the picture of this guy who, when he was 17, killed someone, serves his time in prison and then has to deal with all the things that come with getting out of prison while also trying to make a baseball career happen. Um, it really worked for me on a lot of levels. I thought that it was really well acted. I think the baseball was photographed well. And I think that you get a real, um, it's a very gritty movie. And you don't always see that in baseball movies. You know, a lot of them, you know, are kids from, you know, Iowa. It's in Iowa or, you know, the natural in, in, in it's sort of like a rural sport. Uh, the grittiness of New York really comes through. Um, the pain the guy is in for what he did wrong and, and how he kind of lost everything. I just like the idea that it's a guy coming back from a mistake, something he did wrong. He is a victim of his own toxicity and how the game works in that and helps him overcome that or at least starts taking steps to um, overcoming all those mistakes. 
Uh, again, I thought the movie was great. I definitely will rewatch it over and over. I rate it a solid triple into the gap. That's how we're going to rate movies on the show now. Either a strikeout, a single, a double, triple, or a home run. I give it a triple. I definitely will revisit it um, in the coming years. The only thing I did like about the movie is that Joe and I are the same age. We were both born in 1976, and he looks like that, and I have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. Who's on first? The Let's Get To Local 9, brought to you by Zoomer Sport. So we're excited to be joined by Alan Miller of the Portland Pickles to talk about Pickles baseball and something else they've cooked up. Alan, first of all, we almost have baseball. How are you feeling? I feel great. I was just watching some spring training. It's yesterday, first day of spring training. Sure felt great. I, you know, this is the best time of the year. Absolutely the best time of the year. And, you know, it looks like at least we're hoping for a, what seems like it's going to be a regular baseball season, maybe not in attendance, but at least you guys being back in your home park. Is that the plan so far for the Pickles? Yeah, that's our plan. Uh, you know, we've actually we've had some great conversations with um, the governor's office, as early, you know, as recently as today. Um, we, we've created an alliance with uh, Team Oregon Alliance with the other two Oregon teams in our league, so the Bend Elks and the Corvallis Knights. Um, so we are working together with putting all the information and all the protocols together. And, um, you know, for an on the field, I, I think we're, we're full steam ahead. And, you know, we're also optimistic we'll have fans. Um, you know, it may be less than, I, this less than we want, but we're going to continue to grow as hopefully the whole situation gets better. I, that's the thing is I'm really feeling, and everybody I'm talking to, you included, feels like it might start off weird, but it might end closer to what we view as normal. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, we are on this really interesting precipice right now of the next three months, you know, being this incredible optimistic time. You know, I think that, you know, just comparing it to what we had to deal with last year, um, you know, there, there's a little bit more clarity in that, I, you know, what people are out there playing. Uh, I think spring training starting with fans was, was huge. And I think for us, it's, I think it's just a matter of seeing it. You know, it's, it's you know, if you haven't been out of your house in a year, it's a, it's a really it's a really striking thing to be around fans again. It takes a second to get used to it. Um, but, you know, I think once you get used to it, we go to a game and you start to see it on TV with fans. You, we all know what we're missing. And I think, it, I think people are open to doing it safely and being like, I'll do whatever I need to do as long as I can get out there. I'll wear my mask. I'll, you know, I'll sit apart from people. And, um, you know, it'll, the experience will evolve. I'm just excited to get a picture with this guy again. Uh, Mr. He's Mr. ready for you. He's been out at spring training all weekend. He's been watching some Mariner games. He's, he's getting ready. I, I love that. That's awesome. Um, but you guys aren't just doing Portland Pickles baseball. Uh, something exciting with the Gherkins. I've got the hat here. Tell me a little bit about that part of it. Yeah, well, you know, we started last summer. We started, you know, the Wild Wild West League. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was because, you know, the West Coast League wasn't playing uh, so we, we basically needed the Gherkins to get out there. We, hey, we had the Gherkins ready to go. We had the Pickles ready to go. Uh, you know, the Gray Wolves is someone else we work with. And, um, you know, in the time with the Westland Knights. So we had a really great experience with this. And we wanted to continue to make sure that the Gherkins had great competition as well. Uh, so we have two new teams entering the Wild Wild West League. We have the Willamette Wild Bills. And then we also have the Portland Rosebuds, which is an incredible story um, that we really wanted to, to bring to life this year. Well, tell me a little bit about the rosebuds, because first of all, just from a branding design, gorgeous. 
<laughs> well, thank you. I mean, this was a this was a bit of a long process for us. We've been working for a couple of years, and we 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 really um, you know we worked with uh, you know Rob Nyer, our commissioner of the league, who's a, a great historian, and just trying to figure out what did this team look like? What did they do? What happened? So we've kind of been putting the, sounding the alarm about, hey, there was a Negro League team that played in Portland in, you know, 1946. It was, you know, owned by Olympian Jesse Owens. It's an incredible story um, that sort of was lost to history. So we've kind of gone back and we've tried to find as much as we can about it. And just by even talking to people, we've, we've found out, we've found a lot of other cool things, um, you know, where they played and some other documentation about them. So we're, we're still kind of going out there and finding as much as we can. Um, you know, it, without having those jerseys and all this art, we kind of went out there and created our own interpretation of what we thought it would be and what it would look like. Um, so we've got some shirts and some hoodies, <coughs> excuse me, and we've got, um, we've got some great hats, uh, some great new era hats that I, I think uh, all my fellow crazy merch people will be really excited about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a good collection. Um, but, but talk to me about that. I mean, you know, because you guys are doing it and – serendipitously or or sort of coincidentally the kansas city t-bones rebranded the monarchs which is another really famous like how important is it for us to remember this whole piece of baseball history that honestly they wanted us to forget at the time yeah it's fascinating and i think it's interesting for our sort of our generation i you know we i i'm just saying growing up as a baseball fan i i didn't know anything about it um, and I think that the, the, you know, the Negro League Museum has, and, and MLB has done a really good job of starting to expose what this is. Um, so when you start to go back and be like, oh, wait a minute, you're telling me that all the best major leaguers are playing in this league and not major league baseball. Oh, that's really weird. So, and then you start to really get into the story and understand like this league very well could have been better than major league baseball at the time. Um, and, you know, what happened to them? What happened to the players? And of course, some of them went on to have incredible careers in major league baseball, but you know, a lot of them didn't. And, and actually, when you start to hear about the struggles and what these guys did to, you know, build teams out of nothing and compete yeah. and go on the road, you know, with, with, with the issues they had to deal with, it was incredible. So I, I think just from an educational perspective, the more of this we can bring to light and like, hey, this was a team. They tried. They were out there working hard. And, you know, they didn't succeed that year because mainstream media would not give them the attention. And they were, had a really hard time promoting what they were doing. Um, so there's, there were a lot of things that was incredibly difficult for them. And I think if we can kind of just bring some of that visibility back to the struggle they went through uh, and all the things that they, you know, that happened during that time, I think that'll be a good win for us. And, you know, I, I think it's, it was really serendipitous that the Monarchs did the same thing, being in Kansas City and doing all that. That was an incredible rebrand for them. They did such a great job. And, you know, and I think that it's, I think we're all starting to see it at the same time. I think we're all starting to see these arguments and discussions about, well, should they be in the Hall of Fame? Should these stats be real? Like, how how do they how, how does that work with the, how do you integrate stats and all those things? And so, once you start to see that happening, then I think we all you know the floodgates will open, and you'll start to see more and more markets um, being able to support and showcase those teams. I think, especially with the crossroads we were at in 2020, and I think you know we've had uh, um, filmmakers on um, African American filmmakers who who are big baseball fans who will openly say, look they don't care that I'm a fan. Like they're not going after me. I think it's incredibly even more important that you guys are showing just that's really been a historical practice of baseball and we need to fix it. If we want the game to keep growing, we have to fix that. That's right. And, and I think knowing your history is really important to move forward in the future. And, you know, so the fact that a lot of us don't know our history is, 
is something that needs to be you know needs to be fixed for us and for future generations to to understand what what happened and how we can be how we can be better people and you know how we can improve the game and make the game better one of the things i was very like i was i mean honestly proud of you i we've we've only met in this this uh this format, but I think you're one of the best people in baseball that I've met and, and an innovator and you guys, and also the people in normal Illinois found that that pod thing was more than just a, um, a way to get through, but a way to really grow the game. What was some of the advantage you found of, of housing four teams in one league, kind of like what they're doing with the Colonel collegiate league. What were some of the benefits that you think the fans will get to experience? Yeah, it's a really interesting model. I think it's something that, you know, especially in our time where we're really a bit travel challenged, it's a really interesting place to be. Um, the Vantage really, I think there's a lot, I think people, people really underestimate the value of a good rival. Um, you know, I think you underestimate that if for a fan to be able to know more about more teams makes them a, a more intelligent fan. Um, you know, the more it's, it's not a bad thing to see the same team more than once a season or twice a season. Oftentimes, I think it's great because you really start to pull into the strategy a bit more of the game and understanding what certain guys can hit, what they can do. Uh, and it makes a, it makes a better experience as well. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of people that have sort of, you know, you don't want to play too many teams many times, but I don't, I don't really see as a fan. I actually think the opposite of that. Um, but really what it's done for, for us and a lot of things is it eliminates a lot of the costs that are just, it's just too expensive. I mean, you can have travel ball teams doing a lot of things because they charge their players thousands of dollars to do sure. that. Um, but from a level that, you know, from a wood bat summer league and college league, um, you know, there, there aren't that many options for, you know, for, for what we wanted to do was to create that sort of minor league system. And I think we saw that work really well. We have, there are, uh, we have a player who played on the Gherkins last year who was the MVP of the Gherkins, uh, and he's going to be on the Pickles this summer, uh, which is incredible. So it really gave him an opportunity to showcase what he could do coming from a smaller school um, and got, you know, now he's going to a bigger school, but also, you know, the coaches saw him and said, this, we need this guy next year. Uh, and same with the Grey Wolves. We have a player on the Grey Wolves who was outstanding last year and the Pickles said, we want that guy. So he'll be on the pickles this year as well. So, you know, I think having a localized scouting and having the ability to, to bring people along that way is great. I think the real challenge in a lot of these baseball systems is there is no obvious, well, if I get on this team and do well, I can get to this team and this team. Um, you know, we have to build that system. And we're fortunate that the Portland area has so many great baseball players. And baseball is a big priority, uh, you know, in, in, in the state of Oregon. Again, you're one of the biggest innovators we've ever talked to on the show. That was that's a genius idea, uh, Alan. Tell me where where can everybody find all the information about your, the the Pod League and about what's going on with the pickles this year? Well, you can go to PortlandPicklesBaseball.com to get all the pickle stuff. Our schedule's up now. We'll be announcing promotions and all that good fun stuff in the next month or so. The WildWildWestLeague.com. You can get all the information on the Rosebuds, the Wild Bills, the Gherkins, the Gray Wolves, and all that good stuff. So between those two sites and our socials, uh, there's tons of information, and we'd love for everyone just to dive in and find your favorite you know, team and root along with some terrific merch. <laughs> and now, good wood, knocking around the majors with Andy Tomchesson. So we are here with Andy Tomchesson on our new segment, Good Wood. Um, Andy, first of all, how does it feel to know that people actually asked where you were last episode? I mean, it's good from a 
FBI missing person standpoint, I'm not going to appear on a milk carton anytime soon. But if I were to, um, it's good to know at least what three people would ask about where I was. <laughs> None of those are related to me, by the way, if that tells you anything. Well, yeah, there you go. Um, that means either A, your relatives don't listen to the show and therefore didn't know you were gone. Or they're guilty. Or they're guilty. Um so what can we expect out of this show? What, what, what do you think? I mean, are this segment in particular? You mean beyond puns about wood for at least the first few episodes? Abs- <laughs> I suspect we'll go 37 episodes. I use the oh, number so 30. You'll get at least 30 puns about wood. Yeah, um, I, I use 37 on purpose. My Kevin, my Kevin Smith people know how it relates to the good wood pun. Anyway. Um, I, I think for me, where this segment might differ uh, one of the things I respect about your platform in this show, and I'm so appreciative of being on, is the fact that we do tend to look at the more positive side of the baseball community and the baseball um, culture as it stands, whether that is minor league baseball, independent baseball, affiliated baseball, collegiate baseball, or even my segment, which is going to deal primarily with major league baseball. Where I'm going to depart a little bit is I don't have a whole lot of positive stuff to talk about when it comes to Major League Baseball. Um, so I think that I can bring a little bit of my personal real world, real job experience from a um, labor negotiation standpoint, because that is going to be the key topic and really what everything, the lens everything's going to be viewed through for this year up until and through December 1st uh, when the CBA expires and potential work stoppages and all the other bad things that could potentially happen after that. So then let's get into the episode. So on your Twitter, you describe yourself as being a full-time curmudgeon. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, yeah, with all the positivity and and you were part of it too, everybody just excited about spring training. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that kind of uh, ax that feels ready to fall on baseball's head. Well, as I just said, the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement between the players and the owners, uh, expires on December 1st. Uh, If you've been paying attention, and I assume everybody here has, uh, there's been a lot of movement from an ownership standpoint um, dealing with the machinations of Major League Baseball and trickling down to the affiliated clubs, which we now have to make this huge differentiation on because that, that group went from 160 plus to 120. Um, I think a lot of the things that Major League Baseball ownership did during that activity and a lot of the Machiavellian machinations that they made during those negotiations, uh, up to and including even the COVID-related negotiations that they had to make with the players to get a season played for 2020, uh, were a testing ground for the CBA. there's a whole lot of bad press that's going to come with this. And I don't see, me personally, I don't see a way that a work stoppage is going to be avoided, whether that is late this season when it just looks like there's no hope or immediately after December 1st going into the 2021 or 2022 season. One of the things we never ever discuss on this show with any degree, a great amount of depth is Seattle Mariner baseball. Um, are you know, they an affiliated team or independent? <laughs> I don't even remember anymore. They, they probably will get contracted if they don't get their act together. Oh. Um, but, you know, we all know, you and I are Astros fans, and we know 
and I think you agree, I believe that the real reason that George Springer was not keen to give a hometown discount had nothing to do with any trash receptacles in 2017, but actually had to do with the service time manipulation. Um, with the Seattle Mariner, um, I guess he was the president, whatever he was, outing the fact that that is something people just do as opposed to something we all suspect, is that going to make this even harder to get a deal done? Oh, absolutely. And, and you're talking about Kevin Mather, um, who on February 5th uh, took his la- made his last official, official action as president and CEO of the Seattle Mariners because he resigned that next morning. Um, basically spoke to a Rotary Club in the greater Seattle area and talked about a couple of things. Uh, one of which I think got bigger headlines immediately because it drives into the cultural zeitgeist um, of race relations right now. Uh, he was very critical of Latin American players who didn't immediately understand English and how they weren't able to negotiate contracts. They weren't able to even speak to him the way he wanted to be spoken to, and that he held that against them. Um, that's what got a lot of the press. The bigger issue, the bigger thing he brought up is he actually confirmed to your point, what everybody already knew happened, but now you have a major league executive saying, oh, yes, we absolutely do this. And not only do we do it, but we threaten players with it, um, is service time suspension. And that is keeping players in the minor leagues longer than they potentially need to be kept in to control them for greater periods of their prime prime playing years. And George Springer is a great example of that because it's long been suspected that Jeff Lunau um, kept Springer in the minor leagues for at least one more season than he had to, to get his prime years. So Springer, instead of hitting free agency at 28 to 29, hits it at 31, which means the contract he just got from Toronto is likely the last big contract he's ever gonna sign. Whereas you look at somebody who did not have that happen to them, Carlos Correa, who is gonna hit free agency at age 27. So likely he's gonna get a five-year contract, seven-year contract somewhere, but still have some back end where he could sign yet another contract should he want to. Um, And and that you're you're messing with players' livelihoods. And when you're talking about a giant industry that makes billions of dollars, although if you listen to the owners, it's less and less every year, um, it's just petty. But now you've put um, the front office of the Seattle Mariners in a position where they have to refute that if that ever happens, and that was just Kevin Mather talking out of his hindquarters. Um, but now you've put the GM of the, the Mariners in a position where he's going to have to keep a outfielder, Jared Kellenek, on the major league roster, or else there's going to be a player grievance because Mather identified Kellenek as an individual that he is actively suppressing. There were a couple of others, but that's the big one. So you've got a 21-year-old guy who's going to be playing in the outfield for the Mariners who basically has to open the season as one of their starting outfielders because otherwise there's going to be a player grievance filed. And that player grievance only strengthens the arguments that the union is going to have when they come to the negotiation table later on this year. Um, I mean, that was huge. I think the Players Association, and I'll read the quote, a uh, highly disturbing yet critically important window into how players are genuinely viewed by management, not just because of what was said, but also because it represents an unfiltered look into club thinking. To a club, to the owners, the players are fungible pieces. Some are more valuable than others, but they're all replaceable. Right. And so how you treat them long-term doesn't really matter. Um, and I think your better franchises are better at, at least navigating how that feels 
but some franchises, obviously, like the Mariners, who honestly haven't been a respectable, uh, re- a respectable competitive club in over a decade, um, and you wonder why players leave the second they're eligible for free agency. Well, that's why, because they know that nobody's got their backs, and they have to go get their their own. And it, you know, it, it's not unique to the Mariners. Like I said, they're worse at PR, but the Astros <laughs> are guilty of it. The Yankees are guilty of it. Um, the Dodgers are guilty of it. Everybody, all the teams are guilty of it because they're all sitting there saying the same thing. And it's just, it's not just a bad look, but it is a bad beat for Major League Baseball as an organization to have to overcome in what is going to already be a contentious year. One of their own just gave them, uh, ammuni- gave the opposition ammunition for that negotiation. It does seem like uh, this is just another long line of, you know, we, we talked to we, anybody who's watched Ken Burns baseball knows that just because free agency became a thing, there was still collusion amongst owners to not sign free agents. This sounds just like another way of billionaires using lawyers to figure out a way around a system they agreed to. Oh, absolutely. And that's, you know, ultimately when I'm in a really bad mood where I see this going is the owner's, taking their ball and going home and basically blowing up Major League Baseball. Um, and that wouldn't mean that there's not Major League Baseball at some point, but I think it has the potential in the next five years to look dramatically different than it does now. And I think the first thing you saw with that is how they dealt with the minor league um, affiliations and the minor league teams and all the changes that were made this year with no input from the minor leagues. Uh, and it, from things that were uh, – structurally unsound to simple things like dumping the Texas League name or the PCL name and trying to match them up with um, divisions in Major League Baseball. So we now have the uh, Pacific Coast AAA division. Okay, but how does that work for Major League Baseball? Well, I think you start talking about revisiting things like radical realignment. And if, you know, the PCL doesn't matter, or the Texas League doesn't matter, which has been in existence for 120 years. Yep. Well, why does the American League or the National League matter? Why don't we just have baseball? And why aren't the Mets and the Yankees and the Red Sox in one division? And we go with that. Why aren't all the California teams in another division? Um, and that stuff matters. It matters to fans. It matters to communities. You've seen what's happened to communities already just with the, the lack of a promise of a baseball team. And there are still 62-plus teams out there trying to figure – excuse me, 42-plus teams out there trying to figure it out and what it's going to look like. You're going to put major league markets in that kind of bind at some point. Um, and I see it going down a really rough road. And it does matter. I mean, you know, you and I are Astros fans, and, and we've been in the AL now for almost a decade or maybe a decade, but it still feels weird, right? Mm-hmm. I still would – you know, I looked at the schedule as it came out, and. I'm still irritated that we're playing the National League West rather than the Central Division. But, you know, I can make that argument, too, that, we, you know, I grew up playing the Dodgers 100 games a year. It felt like the Reds 100 games a year. Uh, in my 20s and 30s, it was the Cardinals. Um, that was who we were, you know, or the Cubs. That's who you're always going against. It's still odd to consider that, you know, whether Twitter likes it or not, we have a rivalry with the Yankees. Yeah, no, that's very weird. Um you know, as we kind of get close to wrapping up the segment then, I, I mean, obviously we're going to get really into the weeds and a lot more daily or weekly MLB stories, and you still will be on Go Go Astros at least uh, once or twice a month. But let's keep looking at the CBA thing. You know, you and I have already lived through a strike, and 
I am naive. I think I'm definitely more naive than you are. I really believed both parties at nine in 95 when they said it wouldn't happen again. How much of the same playbook are we going to see? Is it still going to be, we're not making enough money and we're not going to open our books? I mean, how much of it is just going to be 1994, the sequel? I think the owners have no motivation. And the argument against work stoppage is always there's too much money at stake. I think the owners are very dug in based on what we've seen over the past 12 to 24 months, um, that they're okay with losing money for a while if they get their way ultimately. Uh, because they know ultimately TV is going to bail them out, right? So if they have to forego part of a season, well, they just did that last year. They can't afford to do it indefinitely, but I could certainly see a situation where we're not picking up baseball in 2022 until May, June, July, um, if that means the owners get their way. Uh, the players don't it, it, it's always the problem. Players don't ever have a lot of leverage because ultimately it's millionaires against billionaires. Sure. Um, and the TV contracts are on the billionaire side. So that, you know, adds more fuel to the fire there. Uh, I, I think if major, if the owners continue to misstep the way they have uh, public sentiment, which already is not in their favor is going to be even worse. Um, and ultimately you're talking about the potential death or certain, uh, uh, I don't even know the word I want to use, um, destruction, dissolvement, something, reduction of the impact that Major League Baseball has on our culture, which is good for the independent leagues. It's good for the minor leagues to some extent. Um, but you referenced the Kid, Kid Burns documentary. Baseball is a huge part of the American culture. And if you take it away, if you diminish it, it comes back in another form, but it's not the same. But it's not the same. Um, you know, I, I think when you watch all of this stuff unfold, it does seem like we're going to be doing um, the exact same thing. And you mentioned um, the press and, and you and I having, you know, I think have similar views of how Jim Care seems to not, Jim Crane, excuse me, seems to not have cared what his fan base endured with um, the fallout of the sign stealing scandal that he sort of let his fans kind of deal with. Um, do the owners care how they're viewed by major league baseball fans? Or they just figure we'll come back because we're, we're thousandaires. We're not even millionaires. Oh yeah. The fans will come and the fans they care about are not you and I. Um, the fans they care about are corporate ticket buyers. Uh, corporate ticket buyers will continue to buy tickets because it's something they can take clients to do, and it's almost a zero cost because you can, under certain tax schemes, write off the expense of those tickets. So it's a way to entertain clients and get future business. It's considered an investment. And as long as you, you, you mentioned Jim Crane, you look up at Minute Maid Park and you see those, I think, six or seven community leader boards, those companies pay a lot of money for those boards to advertise. So as long as games are on TV and I can see the, and I'm just making one up because I don't even remember who's up there, the Halliburton logo, that means something to Halliburton enough that they're giving maybe a quarter million dollars plus every certain period of time to have their name on that board. It's not just because they're super nice guys in the way they wage war with contractors in foreign countries. That's a whole other topic. Um, it's because they're paying for the advertising. Where it becomes a problem for the owners is when that advertising dollar starts drying up. Tickets are great. Advertising and TV is where they make their money. 
Okay. Well, then let's wrap it up with this then. Um, you know, you still, for as much as you have a very, I think, realistically doomy or gloomy uh, view of the future, you still hang out. You still hang on every pitch. You're still very much involved. So what has you at least excited about this 2021 season as we go forward? Um, I, you know, I want to get back to playing 162 games, playing a full season. Uh, going to a ballpark would be cool because didn't get to do that for – it's been over a year since I've been in a major league ballpark. And there's that's always going to be something I enjoy and want to experience. And I'm always going to support my home team, at least the players on that team. I don't have to like the ownership. I mean, you grow up in Houston of a certain age, you're an Oilers fan. And I guess that applies to being a Texans fan now. You don't have to like the owners. Nobody likes the owners. Nobody liked Bud Adams for decades. Yeah. Uh, To your point, you know, to your example, which drives your dad had access to those guys and he decided he was a Cowboys fan instead. I mean, so, you know, you don't have to like the, the ownership, but at some level you do have to like the product they put on the field, which usually is players. And so players will come and go and players will be who you get attached to. And um, I'm excited to see from a, just a pure baseball fan standpoint, um, some of the great stories that come out, the, the young guys that come up and get a shot and surprise everybody. The old guys who are trying to give it one last try, um, not to be too poetic. I'd love to see a Verlander serious and can come back, you know, August, September time frame and pitch if he has those pitch for, because I don't think he's back next year. Um, but I think there's a lot of teams that have a lot of good things to look forward to. And, and baseball's fun and, and the rivalries are fun, except for the with Arlington, which is just a choke of a franchise, a city. Um, Forever. But other places are great. Uh, and, and I don't know if you're a baseball fan, how could you not be excited what they're doing in San Diego? Uh, even if you yeah. hate Trevor Bauer, how can you not be excited about the pitching staff that the Dodgers have put together? Uh, the Yankees are going to be strong. Uh, you've got up-and-coming teams in the Midwest. The, the White Sox are telling everybody they're going to win the division and win the World Series, even though they haven't beat the Twins in forever. Uh, the Twins are great. The Cubs and Cardinals are going to be um, competitive this year. Um, so there's just a lot. The Marlins look like they could be, uh, if they build on last year, uh, could be a surprise team in the East. So there's just a lot of strong teams. The Blue Jays. Like I mean, yeah. And I like the idea that the balance seems to have shifted a little bit uh, to be more even towards the National League in the last year or two. Uh, whereas you looked at 2017, 2018, all of the power teams outside of the Dodgers were in uh, the American League. So it feels like that's evened out, maybe even gone a little bit back to the National League side. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that is going to be fun to watch. And, and, you know, and as always on this segment, we'll do our best to kind of, you know, keep the on-field stuff separated from the business part of it. That's the way to stay sane. So, Andy, that was some good wood. Oh, and, you know, one more thing about good wood, because uh, it'll always lead a little bit to the left. Um, I'm going to try to find some stories. I told you there'd be one in every segment. Uh, there's always going to be some lean towards the weird. Uh, we're always going to look for something weird. Uh, as uh, John Miller used to say, weird, wild, and wacky. That, uh, we're going to look, look for some of those things as well. That'll be fun. I can't wait, you know. And I do want to give it real quick just to understand, like, uh, the color guy for the Astros, Sparky, C-Sparks, when, he do, when he's usually on play-by-play, his home runs are often good wood, and that, that was I think it's inspired. Uh, we will talk to you next week. The Minor League Mind with Jess Canaster. 
So we're excited to jump back into the minor league mind for the first time this season. Uh, Jess will be joining us at a minimum uh, every, at least twice a month. And Jess, you know, when we left into, at the end of season two, um, the disarray was starting to kind of um, make some degree of sense. Now I think we have a pretty good idea where it is or what it is. So what is it? Well, so it is, uh, it, what it is, is uh, something that largely resembles, and of course the it being the future of all baseball that is not uh, Major League. And I couldn't come up with a great name for that umbrella, but it is the umbrella that on top of that, that little pointy part, that's Major League Baseball. Everything else is underneath it. Uh, and so uh, what, what it is is largely what we expected it to be from the original reporting of the fall of 2019. Uh, the teams that were thought of to be on the list, most of them were the ones that ended up uh, losing their affiliations. Uh, thankfully, most of them have found homes elsewhere, and that's kind of, you know, the next few weeks look at it because it is, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a show unto itself, I think, if we really dive into everything. But uh, at least in terms of minor league baseball, that's even just affiliated baseball, that's enough. Um, but what it is is uh, uh, molded from clay by Rob Manfred and the owners of what they want developmental baseball to look like. And for everybody else, it's, you know, it's going to take some getting used to. But uh, ultimately – it is being crafted in the way that Major League Baseball wants it to be. And it will remain to be seen over time if it's good, if it's bad, if it doesn't make a difference. So let's talk about, I guess, I think the first question on everybody's mind, because I think a lot of people are just waking up to the story, um, which is probably how, minor league baseball, how Major League Baseball got away with it, because nobody pays this list degree of attention. Uh, you, me, and like seven other dudes that don't own teams paid attention. Um, 43, other, 43 teams basically lost the game of baseball musical chairs. Uh, how, do, how are they all shaping up, and what does their future look like? Well, so uh, 40, going from 160 to 120, and yet 43 teams lost their affiliation, that – requires some math that, you know, that, that into, unto itself. And really through the whole process of this, you, you mentioned that we're not owners, but we pay attention to it. It's amazing. And I think only because of the general uh, blissful ignorance and not willful, but blissful ignorance of the, of the inner workings of minor league baseball uh, that has added to why this was so not easy, but why this was able to take place without more of a fight. Um, but, uh, ultimately it's, uh, uh, you know, so the, and, and then going back to the, the 43 teams, it's because three teams from independent baseball came in and then there was shuffling all throughout. Uh, but basically as it appeared, the 120 are major league teams got to pick who they wanted. Uh, and because there was no contract in place, like that's something to remember is that the, the professional baseball agreement expired at the end of September. And then it was major league baseball saying, well, we have no contract. Here's what we want to do. Let's do it. And so major league teams got to pick who they wanted to affiliate with and by and large, uh, and only by, you know, a single, a single margin, the the narrowest uh, are the majority of teams, major league teams 
completely unchanged in terms of who their affiliates are, or at the very least, these were affiliates that were in their system last year, because then you get into the intricacies of it. You know, this is the whole Steve Kornacki at the board with the khakis bit of, you know, well, what used to be short season is now low A or high A in some places. And so these teams moved around. Some of the, anybody who had a team in the Midwest league, which used to be low A and anybody who had a team in like the Florida state league or the California league, that was high A, but they had each of those. They're now swapped. So (laughs) 16, you know, it's, 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 it can get convoluted, but really at the end of the day, 16 of the 30 teams uh, have new affiliates and 14 of those 30 are, are unchanged from, from before. Uh, and at the very least, just one new affiliate in that, uh, in that grouping of four. So uh, that's kind of the baseline of how it goes in terms of the, the teams that don't have a seat at the minor league table. Uh, there's been rumors of, you know, if Major League Baseball is going to go to 32 in a couple of years, then they might need some of those teams back. Yeah. Uh, and, and as of now, only nine of the 43 don't have a place to play baseball, don't have a league to play baseball in in 2021, uh, with only three of those either outwardly announcing or just kind of quietly folding up shop and ceasing operations altogether. So, so that's what, and, and those three are the Charlotte Stone, Stone Crabs. Now, the Florida Firefogs, they kind of went out of business, and that was, that was sort of um, – that was kind of known really in, in some circles for years that they just were not financially uh, sustainable and the Lancaster Jethawks. So in Charlotte and Lancaster, is baseball dead? Uh, I mean, I cannot speak specifically or at least not as well to Port Charlotte, Florida as I can Lancaster because for the next day and a half, that's where I still am. Uh, but with the Jethawks, uh, there's a really nice ballpark here. And unlike Florida, the, the, the Fire Frogs, whereas their ballpark, uh, they didn't really have one. They, they played in a couple of different places in their last couple of years. And uh, as I understand it, in Port Charlotte, they had an older ballpark as well. Lancaster has a really nice stadium, one of the best in the, in the former California League, maybe future again California League. Uh, and they lost their affiliation because – and it believed never got the official word, but it, it was believed it was because of the weather because the wind blows out pretty constantly to right field, uh, straight away, right field. And then it's hard to develop players, both pitchers and, and hitters for, you know, inflated number reasons. Um, even though elements exist all over. So, but with that never changing, I don't know how, how much, uh, how, how likely a team is to come back to Lancaster because that's not going to be any different. The wind, the yeah. wind is going to be the wind. The, the Copa identity for the uh, Lancaster Jethawks is El Viento de Lancaster, which is the wind, the wind. of Lancaster. Yeah. So it's embraced here, and that's just what it is. Uh, there's, a, there's a local radio station that has a, a, a spot where they say, come to the Antelope Valley uh, Wind Festival on from January 1st to December 31st. So that's just something that's not going to change. And so, you know, there's talk that they might, because the ballpark is city-owned, there's talk that the ballpark might become uh, something else, uh, revamped into an amphitheater or some other outdoor event mm. venue of some kind. And then, of course, probably, excuse me, there's no going back. Um, but, yeah, I think, uh, I think there is the chance that baseball, uh, as, a, as a professional option, 
may be dead in, in, in those three communities. And you, and you don't see an option for particularly Lancaster for, um, you know, the summer, the collegiate summer league model or independent, just nothing close enough. There, there are two leagues in this area or two leagues that have footprints in this area. Uh, one summer collegiate and one, uh, excuse me, independent. But since the ballpark is city owned, I think really what would need to take place for that is that, uh, and, and this is the case with several other communities as well. Uh, several of the, of the nine who are, excuse me, looking for somewhere to play in 2021 and beyond, the city owns the ballpark. So if the owners want to stop operations and somebody else wants to come in and say, let's try this league or let's try this league. Got it. They have to work with the city and the city has to be willing to do it. Like the mayor here in Lancaster, uh, one of his, one of his first reactionary, reactionary quotes at the news that the Jethawks were not going to be receiving an affiliation uh, from anybody in major league baseball for 2021 and potentially beyond is, well, at least we'll get to save $400,000 a year in, field maintenance. So <laughs> if that exists elsewhere, you run into the same problem of do the owners want to incur the costs of all ballpark operations? Cause it is different everywhere, but that is a very real thing that teams will have to deal with. Uh, if they want uh, new ownerships would have to deal with, if they want to try and resurrect uh, a given community in minor league baseball affiliated or otherwise. Yeah, that's definitely a gloomy picture. I guess just to round it out um, with a little bit of happiness, you are getting ready to move. Um, what are you excited about as far as joining uh, the Senators? Well, the whole uh, Eastern League, at least that's you know that's the name it was, and the the, the Double A Northeast. We're, yeah, we're we're going to talk. We're talking league names your next visit because that's <laughs> a whole ridiculous thing we got to get into. Uh, but so the, that that whole that whole league has, uh, I think, some really good history. Some of the longest tenured uh, partnerships, you know, talk, talking affiliations in minor league baseball. The Senators have been with the Washington Nationals organization since 1991, when they were affiliated with the with the Expos. And there are there are a few others in the league that have had lengthy partnerships uh, with their given team, with their uh, given parent clubs. And so I think that really helps to strengthen what the community can be because uh, Harrisburg is about two hours from Philadelphia. And so it would inherently be a Phillies city potentially, but it's also three hours from Pittsburgh. So that could be there as well. And yet who's affiliate, who the senators affiliated with the nationals. The nationals yeah. So I think you find, and you find that in all little pockets, like, uh, you know, and say like, on the other end, Portland, Maine has long been affiliated. The Sea Dogs have long been affiliated with the Red Sox, and the Northeast, especially New England, is Boston anyway. So that's no different. But I think you find more rabid fan bases. You find maybe stronger partnerships because there are there is so much uh, in the way of proximity to your parent club that, and then uh, being able to live in a given area. And then if you get a chance to go see one major league game a year, uh, take a, a trip into the big city, you might be able to see a former player who you saw up close. Maybe they lived in your house and, uh, uh, and, and now they're playing major league baseball. And that, that, that really, I think, is strengthened by the proximity uh, of it all. And uh, just to be in a new community is exciting to, to myself and my wife because – 
we've lived in a few different minor league communities and really one constant is they love their team. And uh, that passion is infectious. And uh, we are looking forward to being a part of the Harrisburg uh, community and hopefully falling in love with the community just as they love their baseball team. And then by proxy, they love us because we're part of the baseball team. Well, we love you. Uh, this is Jess. We've got a lot more for the minor league mind coming up this season. Thanks, man, so much for jumping on and good luck on the move. We expect lots of photos as it goes down. The six-day drive starts on Wednesday, March 3rd and ends when we get there. <laughs> I'm having a very Oregon Trail moment. Y'all have a good trip. Thank you. No, no rivers to ford, thankfully. Astros, a focus on H-Town Hardball. So we are very excited about this edition of Go Go Astros. We are visited by Mike Acosta, Astros historian. We had originally recorded this for our National Hat Day episode, which is why you'll hear that referenced. But we decided in the edit to hold it off till now so we can present it in its entirety. Even if you're not an Astros fan, it's a great insight to a history of a ball club and what goes into tracking that history. We all know that baseball is all about its future, but it's also about its past. And I love this conversation so much that I hope you enjoy it. And again, thanks, Mike, for coming on. So we're excited to welcome the Let's Get to Mr. Mike Acosta. He is the historian for the Houston Astros. And Mike, first of all, I've got a great office, but you have got a great office. That's sweet back there. (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah, I got some uh, I've been collecting for a long time, so I got a lot of my prime Astrodome related items in uh, in my home office here. It's um it's funny. I was thinking about the dome the other day because I can remember um, as a kid, I pretty much grew up there. Just how big it got in the horizon when you got close and you knew you were getting close to the dome. It was such a special place for me. And I know that you were working on a dome paper model. Is that correct? How was that all going? Well, I serve on the uh, board of directors for the Astrodome Conservancy. And so that, that organization is charged with uh, coming up a, with a plan for redeveloping the Astrodome. And that's something that I've been doing for a number of years just on my own and, and kind of going through and seeing what, what actually works, what, what is the best use for the, uh, for the building um, and, and how we can re-energize it and, and really open it up to uh, a whole new class of Houstonians, um, you know, who have either moved here or were born, uh, you know, before or after, you know, the, the dome stop was not being used for, for baseball or football or rodeo anymore. So uh, it's a wonderful building. And, um, and we've, we've done a lot of projects with it. I'm still working on a lot of projects um, and just trying to move forward with it. Again, so much of much, I would probably do anything to see one more baseball game there. Just just to to soak it all in because I've watched so much so many old videos because I you know I got old. Um, you know one of the things that's interesting and, and this is an anecdote that you won't care about but I'll tell for the audience. Um, I was deployed to Bosnia during the height of the Killer Bees era, and um, during that deployment won an Army Commendation Medal, and my Sergeant Major's pinning the medal on me and rather than give me these 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 words of encouragement that you, that, an, that a senior NCO gives to a young private was telling me that the Astros were nothing and would never win anything in my lifetime. Um, what is it like, I mean, as you've sort of gotten involved and in, in have worked through all of this Astros history for as long as you've done it, 
there really is a lot of history to this team and a lot of great moments in baseball that happened with the Astros. There is, uh, you know, when I would say, uh, you know, the Astros were an expansion team, you know, the sixties produced, uh, you know, four expansion teams, you know, with uh, actually more than that, but uh, uh, you know, it it was during a time period where, um, you know, we, we took a back seat to a lot of the other cities, even New York with the Mets. Uh, they they took a little bit more prominence. They had Casey Stengel, you know, associated with the, the team in the early days. And the Astros were were a very youthful team, but but something that uh, an organization that was based on the future and innovation and and just a different type of mindset uh, of doing things different and and trying to to set a path that that really had had never been done before. And that's that was the mindset of the Astros, and that's why they were called the Astros and why the Astrodome was developed the, the way it was and, and the way it, it played out. Um, you know, it, it, the Astro name is short for astronauts, but it's the, it's the spirit and the, the meaning behind all that. And so, um, you know, we've gone through several decades now where you would say, well, what's an Astro, you know, and you say, well, it's short for astronauts. Well, you know, you think of, of a Houston Astro now, and you're, you're thinking of Jeff Bagwell, you're thinking of uh, Craig Biggio, Nolan Ryan, Jose Cruz, Jose Altuve, in the, in the way that you would think of uh, what's a New York Yankee, you know, that's Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, you know, it, we have several decades, uh, you know, under our belt now where we, we do have a, a significant history. And even before, uh, say, the 1990s, you, you get to a team that's, you know, close to 30 years old, you know, 20, 20 some odd years in the 80s. Uh, there were so many interesting stories that went along with uh, the Houston Astros. And it's really this way, uh, in a lot of respects, it's this way with, with many other teams, too. If you look at uh, Montreal, if San Diego, uh, Anaheim, a lot of these in Milwaukee, uh, you know, just, just these other teams that maybe you kind of consider don't get the same respect as some of the other clubs because of the history behind the, the, the teams there's always an interesting story but Houston is very unique and it's mainly because we built the Astrodome it's mainly because we had AstroTurf we did everything indoors we we did something that had never been done before we had the rainbow uniforms come about in the 70s and just a really really uh, against the grain type of uh, uh, franchise and and not that there's anything wrong with that you know they there was a lot of great players and fun players that, that came along and and a, a young franchise that was finding its way and kind of navigating through some ownership issues and then some financial issues in the 70s and then uh, you know some some commitment and some uh, stability in the 80s with John McMullen but uh, and then of course with with uh, Drake McLean and Jim Crane later on but you know the the Astros always had in my mind i mean th- as a kid growing up in houston uh you know i was always very curious i would hear these little uh, you know first of all um uh, you know i was always hearing about wrigley field yankee stadium great cathedrals of, of baseball and i would see the games on tv you know you would see the yankees on tv or you would see the you know the cubs on wgn and, and even the atlanta braves on, on tbs and my day during the summertime 
would be filled a combination of going outside and playing and, and then coming back in and seeing some baseball. And it always looked different. It was a different experience because the, these guys were playing out there in the sunshine yeah. and then the Astros would come on at seven o'clock or seven 30 and we're inside the Astrodome or I was going to the game that night and we're, we're in the Astrodome. It's totally different. But I had a lot of curiosity about that. You know, why, why were we different? Why, you know, what prompted Houston? What was so special in Houston? Why did we have all that? Why did, you know, why was it so different? Why was the experience and the storyline different? And so there were a lot of fascinating personalities involved with the development of the team. Uh, A lot of great stories, a lot of great, uh, you know, big wins for the city of Houston and the surrounding areas in, in Harris County and, and the, the counties around and the, the rest of the state, actually, in Louisiana, Arkansas, all the surrounding areas for a very long time. But I was just very curious. And so as a kid, I wanted to know. I mean, it's very easy. I can go look up in the newspaper. I could find a, you know, a media guide and, and look up how many home runs, you know, Jimmy Wynn. Jimmy Wynn was before my time. Um, you know, I was more in the era of, of uh, Jose Cruz, Nolan Ryan, Joe Necro, Billy, Billy Doran, you know, in the, the, the late 70s and into the 80s. Uh, but, but, you know, when, when you want to look at the history of a team, you can always go. And now it's, it's so easy, you know, with all the websites and all the, the Twitters and everything else. But, you know, back then there was no source to go to except the library. And so I was very curious. Okay, I, I I can see how many home runs, and I can read about Jimmy Wynn, and I can see what he did on the field, and how many games the Astros won in a certain year, or, or what kind of difficulties they had as the Colt Forty Fives. But I wanted, I really wanted to know why were we called the Astros? Why did we have the Astrodome? Why did we have AstroTurf? What all of this, the the big encompassing story was fascinating to me. And so I did a lot of research. My mom would take me to the library. She worked downtown. And uh, we would go to the library, especially during the summertime, yeah, and spend some time there. And and I would look at the microfilm and and uh, you know the photographs and some of the uh, the books, you know, that were. I remember the day that I found that, that there was a a biography on Judge Roy Hoffines, and <laughs> yeah. you know, as a as a little kid, I did who this guy was. But um, when I opened up that book. And, you know, started reading and started looking. And I'm a, like I said, I'm a kid. I mean, I was. <laughs> I'm trying to think you like seven, eight years maybe old. Maybe in, in fourth grade. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. I was maybe like in fourth, you know, fourth or fifth grade when, when I started doing this. And, um, and you know, I, I started reading about these, these different uh, personalities, Ari Bob Smith and Craig Cullinan and George Kirksey and, and find out who, who these guys were that were basically unheard of at the time. Uh, unless you really knew your your history, and so um, those guys became heroes to me, just like the the ball players on on the field. Because if it hadn't been for them, uh, you know, we would not have any uh, Houston Astros, and we never would have had the Colt Forty Fives, and then all these wonderful players that have come through town uh, would never have had an opportunity to to entertain uh, the fans and and play and and accomplish some some great things. So. Um, it, I always thought that the Astros had a had, had a very fascinating story just because of the unique quality yeah. of how how they came about. So anybody who who came and said, ah, oh, the Astros didn't have any history, well, you know, maybe they're just basing that on on just pure win percentages and and you know, the Astros uh you know had not been in the World Series and had had come close, you know, and and this and that. But I, I think when uh you look at a, a public trust like a 
sports franchise, you know, you look at, at pride, you know, uh, we cheer for the guys who wear the, the right color clothing, <laughs> you know, so to speak, uh, that represents us and uh, as a community. And, and it's, a, it's a good spirit, you know, and, and so I think that, you know, to, to detract, for someone to detract from a, a franchise um, simply because they haven't won a World Series at the time or, you know, maybe they're only two decades old, you know, that's, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. Um, you know, it's funny because we are, it's our national hat day special and I'm a graduate of the university of Texas. And so I believe that the Longhorns were burnt orange at home and white on the road and they don't wear anything else. Conversely, the Astros, part of their tradition is really being on the cutting edge of uniform look. Um, how important was that early on for the team? You know, the shooting star jerseys, for example, the rainbows, the rainbow up here, then the blue and the gold. Uh, how important was that to the to the team to always kind of be looking forward as far as their look on the field? Well, you know, the with the Colt forty five insignia that they had, um, the, uh, the 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 gun that won the West and would win the National League was the the slogan by by uh, Bill Nieder, who was uh, the insurance uh, salesman in Houston, who who won the the naming contest and. Uh, the colors that were associated, the, the navy and orange. Um, first off, it, there's been a lot of uh, talk as to where that navy and orange came from. Uh, the orange was a favorite color of Roy Hoffines, uh, but it was also a, a dominant color of where um, uh, Paul Richards came from uh, with the Baltimore Orioles before coming to, to Houston. Uh, and then the, the blue color that was mixed in there was meant to look like a Texas sunset or a Texas oh. sunrise is what uh, what was what was relayed to me. And and so they they wanted something that would go with the, the Western type theme. And so, the, you know, you think of the uh, the old West movies and you have the, the you know, the broad wide angle shots with the sky and everything and the cowboys on the range and so to speak. So that, that's kind of where that came from, but it also matched extremely well when they went with the, the, uh, the astronaut in space theme, when they, when they changed the, the name, uh, it was always very important, um, with, with the ownership, uh, especially with Roy Hoffines and in the look and the appearance and how it was going to, you know, I think uh, the, the shooting star, uh, had movement to it. You know, we saw the, the open star in the late nineties with the gold star, kind of an open end star. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted that movement in the, the original shooting star as well. Um, and that, that was something that was a, a signature and, and Alan Shepard, the astronaut was one of the deciding factors in uh, naming, renaming the, the team from the Colt 45s to the Astros. And um, it came down to the stars and the Astros and, you know, with Astros being short for astronauts yeah. and the space program taking off, you know, he, he really liked that. He, he told Roy Hoffines that that would, that would be his choice. And so that's what they, uh, what they went with. But, um, you know, the, you have to also understand with, with uniforms and appearances uh, and where baseball was in general by the early seventies, you know, Roy Hoffines had a stroke in 1970. He was, uh, incapacitated for a while. They, they appointed uh, some other people to kind of, I mean, he was still there. He was still very alert, but he, he no longer was involved uh, as much as he was. I mean, the, this is a guy who the, the Astrodome was, was his palace. And so yeah. he was in, involved in everything. Now he let the baseball people run the team. Um, you know, I talked to some of the former players before and I used to ask them how, 
was he visible in the clubhouse and and he wasn't you know he was more concerned with the operation of the Astrodome and then what became the Astrodome main when they built Astro Hall and Astro World and the Astro World hotels and creating a destination place for for people to to come to that area um but when the when he had his stroke um it, it also was the beginning of some financial uh difficulties for the Astros hmm. in the early 70s and by the time um they got to the mid 70s the creditors had kind of taken over and uh control the team so you know you had ford motor credit mattel uh that was in, involved in there and and uh, so they were kind of running the, the team so when you get into the 70s you also see the advent of or the emergence of larger emergence of color television and so not only in houston did we see the rainbow uniforms but you saw you know, green and gold uniforms yeah. in, in Oakland. And, you, you you know, you eventually saw those those gold uniforms in Pittsburgh and uh, Baltimore had some orange uniforms as well. But those were solid uh, uniforms, you know, one kind of a monotone uniform where they, they primarily had one color. And what the Astros did, uh, you know, leading into 1975 uh, was, was completely different because you had shades of... Uh, you know, two shades of orange, you had yellow and red, and you still had the navy in there. But it was a different look of a what was supposed to be a shooting star going across uh, the, the the lower torso and then the astro name on top. Right. Uh, so it, it was, uh, it was something that was bold. It was something that they wanted where no matter if you were watching, because if you're still watching the game on, on black and white television, there was going to be no doubt that you were watching the Houston Astros, which, you know, in, instead of shades of orange and red and yellow, you were going to be seeing a grayscale shade and, and right. these uh, different colors of gray across these stripes. Uh, and then the, the dark star that was on the, the, the uh, uniform. So it was something that was, I think, was born out of trying to do something different uh, because the team uh, was not doing that well financially. Right. Uh, there were the Astrodome actually needed a lot of attention at that time. Uh, and and uh, it, it became the rainbow uniform just became something uh, what, what I call the DNA of the franchise. Uh, from that point, I think that the, the as much as I really, really love the shooting star, and I think it's a very good logo, and it was very good looking uniform, and I, I love it. And the, the current uniforms that the Astros wear now, it was sort of born out of that original uniform, right? Uh, with the the orange, you know, and and blue, and the way it's trimmed out a little bit, it's scaled back a lot more simpler than than the shooting star uniform, but. With that rainbow uniform, that distinctly became Houston, just like the pinstripes became for the the Yankees in New York. So, um, it it was it was something that that really made it made it. So when you thought of Astros, you thought of orange hats and rainbow uniforms, and that's that's right about the time where I started going to games in the late seventies as a toddler. You know, and then I walk in there and I see you know this bright. AstroTurf field and the lights on the scoreboard yeah. across the outfield and the different color seats. And then the guys on the field are wearing these, these uniforms and, <laughs> and these hats. And it's just, it's just a, it, it was just a cool atmosphere uh, going in there. And then of course you had the variations and the variations of the, the rainbow uniform over the years was uh, based on the ownership. And that's usually where the, the uniform changes are, 
are really born from is from uh, from ownership changes. And uh, when John McMullen took over in uh, 1979, and then his first full season was was in 1980. Uh, first off, he wanted to to introduce a different version of the rainbow uniform, which was the, what became the the Sunday. And actually, they they started wearing uh, a variation of this uh on the road in in and it was more of a gray scale kind of an off-white uh jersey that had the astros on the front they were wearing this uniform actually the on october 6th of 1980 which was the day that they clinched their first ever uh division title and they won the nl west against the dodgers in game 163 because they they had to have a one game playoff they, they were a little too confident going into L.A. with a three-game lead. They wound up losing three games in a row, so they were tied. And so they had a one-game uh, playoff, game 163, on October 6th of 80. Uh, and this was the uniform that they were wearing. And this was a, the first um, alternate version of the rainbow uniform. And it had the rainbow stripes uh, on the sleeves, which were a little bit different than than the full-body rainbow. It was a, it's, You had actually had navy. Uh, and then red and an orange, yellow in the middle, and then on the other side, uh, orange, red, and navy again. So you had two two stripes of those colors except for the yellow down the middle. Uh, and then that became the pattern that extended. I mean, that that became so identifiable, yeah. that look with the rainbow uniforms, whether it was on the, sh- on the shoulders or if it was across the, the front, it became so identifiable that when they did a renovation to the Astrodome, in uh, 19, the, the, the 1980s were basically the decade of upgrades for the Astrodome. Uh, lots of different renovations that went on to, to bring it up to, to modern standards at that time. Um, and part of that was the seating color changes. Uh, and the upper deck, which had for years been known as the gold level, it was it was a gold and bronze combination. Oh, okay, uh, became the rainbow level, and that's that's where the um, the rainbow level was born. Uh, you know, after the the rainbow uniforms had been around for a little bit, and then the shoulder rainbow was there in the early '80s. By the time they got to 1984, which is when they they began overhauling uh, and reupholstering the seats using the same the same chair, the same seat pans uh, from 1965, but they just reupholstered them like a, a thousand, like 3,000 at a time. It took several months to do it. <laughs> um, and then and, and so the dome actually took the took the look of what the team was wearing on the field because of that. And so um, you know, that that just kind of stayed there. And of course, um, that look, you know, with the H and the star on the hat, the orange star, and then of course, you know, the variation with the, the navy star on an orange hat um, with the white H on it, that remained there for many, many years. And uh, it wasn't until Drayton McLean bought the team. And again, we have another example of with an ownership change, uh, the owner wants to do something different. And uh, originally, the, the, um, the designs for what were going to be the new uniforms of the Astros involved orange and navy, and and okay. they um, they were they were different uh, different takes of how you could use orange and navy, or you know they it was clear that they were going to go away from the rainbow because um, that was kind of a different era, and and Drayden McLean felt that this was a, a new beginning for for the team, and so they you know they were things would be familiar, but it wouldn't necessarily just continue on the look that they were they had had for many years and so they uh they went to the gold and midnight blue 
uh, but originally they were actually looking at that same font with that shooting star. They were looking at that in in like a metallic, almost oh. like a, a bronze or, or an orange. They were looking to see how well that would adapt uh, into just using a new font. But they decided to go ahead and uh, and and go against what would be you know when you look up at the sky at night, you don't see a navy colored sky. You see almost like a midnight blue. And so right. that's what they were looking for was a the color of a night sky and then having the the shooting star against that. Yeah. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, that was, that, that turned out to be a, a relatively short lived uniform uh, because the, the team uh, started building Minute Maid Park in, um, you know, in, in the late nineties and in, in 1997, they had, they broke ground on the new ballpark downtown and then, you know, 98, 99, it was under construction. And so it was, you know, they, they didn't want to carry, that look, the the gold and the the midnight blue actually turned out to be what I thought was a was a pretty good look for the time. I loved it. Yeah, uh, I, in the I, 90s. I was into it. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really sharp. I remember when the uniforms came out. I, I, I you know, I, I kind of wished it had the orange in it, or you know, had a trim of it at least, or something that that kind of you know looked like it was linked to the years before, uh, but. I thought it was really sharp, but they didn't want to carry that over to the uh, the new ballpark. And and by by 1999, I was I was working for the team at that time, and I remember um, hearing <laughs> some of the the uh, the rumors early on as to what the uh, the the uniforms were going to look like. And some of us internally were were talking about some of the things that we had kind of heard about. And then I got to see. Um, a, uh, a swatch, you know, kind of a style guide of uh, what the uniforms were going to look like, and indeed, they were going to be pinstripe, and they were going to they were, we were going to have red, you know, and, and like a brick red, and and black was going to be part of that, and then the star um, was going to be a modified version of what we saw with the, with the gold star with the open end. It just wasn't going to have as long of a tail on it. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and then, of course, you know, that stayed along for a long time. The uh, pinstripe in that era actually was around about as long or just as long as the, the rainbow uniform. That's and and yeah. that kind of, yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of uh, uh, shocking to people sometimes because they they think of the rainbow uniform as being the uniform of the Astros or right. kind of the, like the heyday of the Astros. But, uh, you know, in essence, from, from 2000 to 2012, there was a pinstripe uniform there. And uh, and it became the first uh, uniform to be worn in, in a World Series by the Astros as well. So it it had some uh, some history. Uh, you know, it, it was kind of an odd time. You know, I remember when we moved to to Minute Maid Park and showing up at the new park. And um, the actual move only it, it took place about ten days before um, the first oh. exhibition game. Wow. And uh, yeah, and and so it was. You, you, they were still trying to finish the park. They they had a lot of finishing work. Uh, the punch list was rather long, and they were trying to 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 get a lot of things done. I remember walking into Union Station, and it, you could smell the fresh paint, the the furniture, the office furniture had plastic you know covers. We pulled the covers off. We were the first people to sit in those chairs, and uh, you know computers were brought in, and the offices were set, and and this and that. So um, you know it was kind of a unique time. Because it felt, in a way, 
like we had moved from you know a decent neighborhood to like River Oaks. Now <laughs> right. you know we you know we were in a in a a, a whole different neighborhood, uh, but it kind of felt like uh, you know we had kind of pushed aside some of the 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 looks of the past because you didn't see the rainbow stuff anymore. And even when you walked inside, you know, what was in Enron Field at in the first couple of years there, um, you you also didn't really see any sign of who played there. Like, you know, you didn't. There was a logo. There was there was a big sign above the the original uh, video board in center field, uh, but it was pretty high up, and and it you know it didn't show up on TV a lot. Um, but there were no real Astro logos throughout uh, Enron Field when, when you first got there. It was just the the colors. The colors of the ballpark were were more prevalent. The yeah, the, what they call uh, river uh, was it river water sea green or something like that. It's kind of a light green, kind of a cool light green, which is the color of the steel. And then the brickwork, you saw a lot of tans and browns and kind of brick reds. They were kind of the they they were the the colors of the franchise came from the appearance of Union Station, and and so you know the the, the limestone, uh, the the black came from the, uh, the 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 smoke of the old trains that you know that used to come through there, uh, or so they said. I always thought that a steam train had kind of a white steam, you know, <laughs> um, but I'm but I'm guessing the coal trains, you know, had had black smoke. But uh, but anyway, they the, the colors went away from the idea of what the Astros were. Uh, in in my in my mind for a while, but they you know after a few years and you get to the World Series and then people start seeing that as an identity, uh, and then you get a new group of people who who uh, actually grow up with that look. And, grow up with that look, yeah, uh, but then, yeah. But then in in 2013, when Jim Crane uh, buys the team, and again another example of a you know with with a new owner of the the team. Um, you know, he, he's a Houstonian, uh, and, and, uh, the group that owns the Astros are, you know, almost all of them are from Houston. And so they, they understand and grew up with the Astros and, and they wanted something that, um, they, they really wanted to, to, to take it internally and see something that was redeveloped that, that really meant a Houston Astros. And so that's, uh, it was very clear and simple when we had a, a process internally and, and start to begin to look at old uniforms and what might work and, and kind of take a survey internally what what we thought we might want to see um it was very quick uh where people were saying we wanted a star uh on the hat where the h was on top of it uh once again uh and we wanted to try to go back to to uh orange and navy and what came out uh the the uh the study that was done with major league baseball uh, First off, one of the, the finalists was kind of a, a recoloring of the script logo of the brick red and pinstripe era. Sure, yeah. Where we, you know, we wouldn't we we wouldn't necessarily have the pinstripes, but you would still have the same font, the same type of star, and we would just use, you know, white, navy, and orange. Uh, again, see how that worked. Kind of like they did in the in the 90s before the gold star stuff. Uh, and then there was another one uh, where it was very, very futuristic. And uh the only memory that i have of it was it had a lot of sharp angles on it it, <laughs> it had a what what kind of looked like it, it was really really different and that's kind of what you want to do during a process like this where you want to see the different extremes 
You want to see, you know, not not just middle of the road stuff, but you want to see the the extreme so you can really compare and really narrow down what you like. And and the other option was is what you see today, what the Astros wear today, and that's what what we wound up going with. Uh, something that was traditional, something that was based in in team history and and kind of what what I was talking about in um, in the 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 groups that that I was involved in um, the DNA of, uh, yeah. of the Houston Astros. I, I will tell you, um, you know, I'm a filmmaker by profession, and so the the red and black look always almost look generic. Like when you're watching a sitcom and they're drinking beer, but they're not drinking. Budweiser was like looking at baseball, yeah. not the Astros. But there was a part of me that just when I saw that rainbow come back in, in the H star and, and all of that just felt like home again. So, I mean, I guess we'll put you on the spot then as we wrap up. What is your favorite all time Astros uniform look? My my all time favorite is, is actually the shooting star. Uh, I love the just the, the look of it. And, and I, I get very technical uh, in the construction of how the uniforms, how, how a logo translate to construction of a uniform. And what I mean by that is uh, the, the original shooting star uniform had uh, what's called chain stitching. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's like a, a loop chain. Uh, it's a very, very um, nice, elaborate embroidery. So it's not like looking at a hat, you know, like if you look at your hat and you see the the threads and how they're embroidered on your hat, it's it's a lot. If you go on Google uh, and, and look up chain stitching, you'll see that it's a very, very nice uh, embroidery. It's a very elegant looking type of thing. Uh, I think maybe the Cardinals still use it at the time uh, that we went to the pinstripes in 2000. We, we uh, oh, I'm sorry, in 2002, we went to chain stitching and... Mm. Um, uh, it, it, we, we were one of the very few teams, one of like maybe four teams that was using it at the time. And we actually briefly considered it for the, the, the current uniforms, but felt that it was just going to add too much weight to the front of the, the uniform because it, it, you know, it's a lot of thread and, and it sure. sometimes adds a little bit more weight. But, uh, if you've ever seen the, those old varsity type of jackets, you know, where the patches on the back or, or the patch on the sleeves, yeah. you know, the kids wear Something kind of like that, but not as not as thick. Uh, it's a very very cool look. I really love the way. I actually own a couple of those those uh, uniforms, uh, original uniforms from the '60s in, in a private collection, and I just love the way it looks. That said, I really love the rainbow uniforms too, uh, just because that's that's what I grew up with. But but as a favorite, I it has to be the the shooting star. If I could have my way, I would have Jim Crane just. Basically five days, we rotate every five days, rainbows, rainbows, blue and gold, shooting star, and and then the orange. Yeah, and 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 that's been talked about, you know, it, it's kind of like you've seen some other teams go to a, uh, what has been a retro uniform, and they, they kind of make it part of their style guide, and they're wearing it on, say, Fridays or Saturdays, uh, but, you know, it, it's also, if you do that, then it kind of loses the mystique a little sure. bit. You know, it kind of, you know, it kind of like, okay, well, it becomes every day. And then what's going to happen, you know, are, are people going to become tired of it again? Is ownership going to be kind of, it's going to disappear, you know, or some, I mean, it's, it's been a proven revenue generator. You know, uh, the rainbow uniform was, was like the most popular retro Jersey that was being produced for many, many years. I'm not sure if it still is, but um, it, it was, it was, it's always been very popular. So, you know, if, 
you want to keep some sort of value on it. So sure. you do want to have those days. And and we actually last year um, with the weird season that we had, uh, you know, we had like five or six dates where we were going to have some very, very unique yeah. um, uh, throwback games. And, and uh, I, I was part of that selection in which uniforms we should, we should use. And I was pushing for some things that uh, we had actually had never really worn before on the field um, since the, the days of those uniforms. And so I was looking at wearing the, uh, the, the black alternate from the two thousands and the zipper front shooting star Jersey from Love the it. early seventies, right before. So things like that. And, and, and some new things to bring, um, you know, the, the, the alternate uh, midnight blue Sunday uniform from the, you know, the, the last years in the Astrodome, you know, yeah. and uh, that was part of that too. But I, I, anyway, you know, it just didn't happen. And, um you know we'll we'll see if that happens in the future again but you know that i that was the one thing about the 2020 season that i was uh uh pretty disappointed in because we weren't going to have anybody there to, to really see them and so i had uh, been the same activity I, I had tickets for all the jersey giveaways from that season like i, I had already had a, oh wow had, yeah i was ready um before we let you go you, do you think we'll see a refresh anytime soon of the i know that nike just took over and some teams have been kind of gotten a little bit different look anything that that you know of or well care? um i mean there i i think we're always looking you know the, the astros are always looking to to keep things fresh uh but but i think that there is um there's a good amount of, of feeling to to keep things consistent and uh i think that with last year last year's uniform uh in 2020 was pretty much the same uniform that we had seen before with majestic except it had the nike logo on it It was same basic construction uh, but i think nike is going to to look at a different type of construction of uniform in the, in the coming years and uh and so we might see some some modifications kind of like we did with uh, introducing the the new Sunday with the rainbow panels on the side. Uh, that was a project that I worked really close on uh, to, to, to bring to the field. Um, you might see some small things. I don't know. You, you never can tell, but I, never right know. now I would probably, I would probably say no, they're not anything really drastic right now. Um, but I think that there's some fun stuff uh, that, that will be in addition to to the normal uniforms i think that that won't go away in fact i, I think that that'll uh just uh you know the, i i mean i can't say too much but um you know i i think that there's there's some things down the line that, that hopefully the fans will will really enjoy uh because i i think i think it would be cool well thank you so much for that thank you so much for being a let's get to I hope everybody follows you because you're one of my favorite twitter follows uh have a great new year and we can't wait to get everybody back to the ballpark yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully we can see people this year at the ballpark. And, and I appreciate you having me on and, and thank you for, for your service. And now on to close it out, the right-hander from Houston, Texas, James Christopher. 
So that does wrap up this episode of Let's Get To. And I do want to do a really quick shout out to uh, Alex, a guy. I'm a, it's always weird. I don't always know last names. And then a lot of times I don't want to know their names because of how they handle Twitter. But Alex is a really good guy. Yankee fan um, sent me a sweet Pizza Rats hat that I posted when I got it. But he also sent me a bunch of baseball cards and in like in a note said, don't eat the gum. And I noticed that they were a lot of minor league cards, first of all, but like tops cards from 1990. And I'm not going to eat the gum, Alex, but I thought I would at least on camera see what happens like a science experiment to 32 or 31 year old gum. So I'm unwrapping this pack. So first, we'll go through and see what winners we have. Oh, man, these bring me back. I was never a big baseball card guy. Um, I wonder if the hitter sports and Alex remember old Jimmy Jones pitching for the Yankees. Um, Hey, Eric Anthony. Andy, we all thought he was going to be amazing. He wasn't. Still, those uniforms, those batting practice, spring training, blue with the rainbow shoulders. Might be the best. Let's see. Oh, got an Ozzie Smith. Nice. Let's see. Tony Fernandez. Denny Martinez with maybe the one of the best mustaches in the history of baseball. But what we were aiming for, the gum. Now, the gum in a tops pack was never great, right? It never honestly was what you would like. If you wanted some gum, you wouldn't just go to your tops pack. And for as much as Kevin Costner says in uh, For Love of the Game, they buy them for the gum. They don't. This is what happens to uh, baseball gum after 31 years in a wax pack. Um, Wow, that's fun. It kind of sounds like uh, I'm Catholic, so it sounds like when – Father's doing the communion. You can hear the the break of the communion wafer. So it's kind of the vibe you get anyway. Uh, but thanks again, Alex, for the cap and all the cards. I can't wait to kind of unwrap them every once in a while. I think I'm going to open a pack when I need to feel good about the world. We do have a production note. We will not have an episode next week. I'm actually going to produce our St. Patrick's Day episode next week. And so then we're going to have sort of a week off. I'll get everything shot and recorded. But then we'll be back for St. Patrick's Day. We have a lot of fun. Um, I, I do think we got to stay safe and stay strong. I always finish. I always end the show by saying, stay safe, stay sane. Well, at least I have during the pandemic. And, you know, I got to tell you, getting the vaccine and feeling that kind of weight come off. I can't express um, how it uh, how it felt, and knowing that Jessica also is protected felt even better. And so I think we're getting there. All we got to do is stay together, and I'll figure out a new way to end the show later on. But for now, stay safe, stay sane, and let's get to. <laughs>